Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. So one of the things that happens to me when I, whenever I go to Mexico or whenever I get away from, from uh, just the, the, the American culture, I, I don't know. I, I guess I just see things from like an out, outside perspective. And, and I was thinking uh, that one of the things that this country, the U.S., values the most is freedom liberty, right? Like you, you cannot talk about America without talking about freedom, without talking about liberty. Uh, and, and that just, you know, as an outsider, as someone who, who moved to this country when, when I was 19, it, it is just very interesting to observe this, this uh, you know, ideal of, of freedom. Someone, Patrick Henry is attributed this uh, this quote, he said, give me liberty or give me death, right? And it seems like, it seems to be the, the motto of, of at least the Revolutionary War and the, the founding of this country. Uh, and I just find it interesting, this, this ideal of freedom. And if I can be honest with you, it, I sometimes would almost describe it as this obsession with freedom, and one of the things that I see in the church, in the letter to the church of Smyrna, is that if these believers had a motto, instead of saying, give me liber- liberty or give me death, they would say, give me Christ or give me death. That was, that was really what they lived for. And that was really what they were willing to die for. They were willing to live, they wanted to live for Christ, faithful to Christ. And they were willing to die for the sake of Christ. And I think that as believers, that really should be our motto as well. Give me Jesus or give me death. And so let's read uh, Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And I'm going to ask you to, to stand for the reading of God's word. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the life that we have 
in you. We thank you that our Lord Jesus, who is eternal, we thank you that he died and he came back to life and he conquered death. We thank you that Jesus knows everything that we're going through, Lord. We thank you that you have promised the crown of life to those who are faithful to you. Lord, we want to be faithful to you. Please uh, guide us in this time together. Please guide me in the words that I'm about to, to speak. That it would be your word that would be speaking to us and that would be transforming us. Please work in our hearts by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're in the, in the church of Smyrna because of some uh, scheduling issues. Remember that uh, Jordan last week preached on Pergamum, and then we're going back to, today we're going back to Smyrna, and next Sunday we're going to uh, go over the church of Thyatira. And so we're here with this church that is one of two churches that Jesus doesn't have anything negative or any reproach or anything against them. The Church of Smyrna and the Church of Philadelphia are the ones that Jesus doesn't have anything against them. For all the other churches, he has some good things. Well, there are a few where he doesn't have any good things to say. And then he has a, a reproach or a, a condemnation, a warning. So, for example, with the Church of Ephesus, he tells them he has good things. He, he they, or, or I should say they have good things and he commends them for, for those good things, but they have a flaw, a, a fatal flaw, which is they don't have love. And then we see with the church of Pergamum that uh, they have a few good things that Jesus has to say about them, but then they have some bad things that Jesus is condemning and they, want, they need to repent of these things. But the church of Smyrna is a church that is faithful to Christ, is a church that is persevering in their walk with Christ, in their, in their Christian life. And so Jesus tells them in, or Jesus introduces himself in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. And as we've talked about, and as I'm sure you have realized, in all of these introductions to each one of these churches, Jesus is pulling from the description of himself that he gives in, or that John gives in, in chapter 1. And these things that he pulls from are not random, are not just things that are unrelated. It's not like John or Jesus said, ah, you know, this sounds kind of cool. I'm going to include it here in this, in this uh, description of myself. But rather, he includes them because they are related. These things are related to the specific situation of the church. So in this case, Jesus describes himself as the first and the last. And this indicates the fact that he is eternal. The fact that he was from the very beginning and he is forever. There was no time in which Jesus did not exist. Right? Jesus was not created. Jesus has been there forever. In fact, the word of God says that everything that was created was created through Jesus. Remember in John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was 
with God and the Word was God. Jesus himself is God. And so he is eternal. But the message here to the church of Smyrna has, uh, is actually full of paradoxes. Paradoxes are, are statements that are seemingly cr- contradictory until you explain them. And so this, this letter or this particular section of the church of Smyrna is full of paradoxes. And so the first one is that the word that Jesus, even though he is eternal, it says, he who died and came to life. And just think about this fact, the fact that Jesus being eternal died. How do you explain that paradox? Well, we know that Jesus, even though he is eternal, he became man and came into this world and he died. And it's not that God died right? You, you wouldn't say that. You wouldn't say that God ceased to exist for, for three days or, or whatever. But Jesus, in his fullness, in his humanness, he died for us. And we know that story, right? We read it in, in the Gospels. Jesus died. But the great news is that even though he died, he came to life. He rose again. He conquered death. And this is extremely good news for the church of Smyrna because they are about to experience tribulation and they are about to experience death. They are experiencing suffering. And what better uh, comfort than to know that Jesus himself, their Lord, our Lord, went through the same kinds of tribulations, the same kinds of sufferings, and even the same kind of death than the church is going through at the moment. So he introduces himself as the one who is eternal, the first and the last, and the one who conquered dead, death, the one who died and came to life. And so in, 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 the, in a similar formula to all the other churches, remember he introduces himself and then he says, I know your, or I know something. Usually he tells them, I know your works. In this case, he tells them, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So the first thing that Jesus tells them that he knows is that he knows their suffering. He knows their tribulation. Jesus knows that this church is going through a lot of suffering. This particular word, tribulation, is not talking about this future event or something that is going to happen. He is talking about the present. He's talking about what they are going through at the time. They are going through tribulation. In fact, if you remember when we read, uh, when we studied 1 Thessalonians, In 1 Thessalonians, Paul reminds the church that the tribulations that they are going through is what the church has been destined for. The church has been destined for going through tribulations. Talk about the the prosperity gospel. Or I should say, talk about debunking the prosperity gospel. Right, The prosperity gospel says, no, you should never suffer. If you suffer, it's because you don't have enough faith in Jesus. If you are sick, it's because you don't have enough faith to be healed. If you are poor, it's not have enough faith in the work of Christ. 
But that's not what the gospel says. The gospel says we have been destined for tribulations. This side of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, we should expect tribulations. We should expect suffering. We shouldn't be surprised if we experience suffering. Tribulation is not something to be avoided. Rather, it is a normal part of the Christian life. And so Jesus tells them, I know your tribulation. He also tells them, I know your poverty. So this church, perhaps because of the persecution that they were enduring by the Roman Empire and by the Jews, they were probably not able to to do normal life in, in the city of Smyrna, even though the city of Smyrna was actually very prosperous, very rich, very beautiful. The church, because of their faith in Christ Jesus, they were experiencing poverty. They were not able to go on the market and do their normal business because people would point them as Christians and they would persecute them. So they were physically poor, but notice the second or, or another paradox here. He, he says, I know your poverty, but you are rich. How is it possible that someone can be poor, but at the same time be described as rich, as wealthy? Well, because their poverty was physical. Their poverty was material. Maybe they were struggling. They didn't have physical means of survival, of food or whatever. But they were spiritually rich. They were so faithful to Christ that in the eyes of God, from a heavenly perspective, they were rich. They were wealthy. And again, right, this totally debunks the prosperity gospel. Brothers and sisters, we are not promised prosperity this side of the second coming of the Lord Jesus. We are not. Look, at, look in your Bible. We are not promised physical, material prosperity this side of the second coming. It, it doesn't say that you can't have it. It doesn't say that you shouldn't seek to live a good life, to improve your life. But we should not be surprised if that's taken away from us. We should not be surprised if we experience poverty. We should never think that God is against us if we are experiencing poverty, tribulation, or persecution. God was not against the church of Smyrna. He doesn't have anything negative to say against the church of Smyrna. This is a faithful church who is experiencing tribulation, poverty, and they were also experiencing slander. The word literally means blasphemy. They were being blasphemed against. They were being slandered by those who say that they are Jews but are not. So here's yet another paradox. People who they thought they were Jews because they were descendants of Abraham. They were persecuting the church. But Jesus is saying, these are not true Jews. These are not real Jews. He goes as far as to say these people are the synagogue of Satan. Instead of being a synagogue for the Lord, like the Jews used to, would love to call themselves, 
they were a synagogue for Satan. Because we know that the people of God, the true Israel, are those who are in Christ. There is no distinction. There is no Greek or Jew. If you are in Christ, you are the people of God. But if you are against Christ, it doesn't matter where you come from, what your bloodlines are, you are the synagogue of Satan. And so these people were persecuting the believers of Smyrna. They were blaspheming against them. There is historical evidence that the Jews were some of the ones that were the most involved in the persecution against the believers of Smyrna. So, one of the difficulties about preaching a passage like this is that generally speaking, we are not experiencing a whole lot of persecution for our faith in Jesus. On a, on a general level, we're not really experiencing a lot of poverty, at least not in the, in the way that the Church of Smyrna was experiencing. On a general level, we are not experiencing a lot of, a lot of suffering because of the name of Christ. I'm not saying that, that there aren't people who are suffering, who are experiencing poverty and persecution. That is happening for sure. But not to the level that this church was experiencing this kind of persecution. But the thing about this passage is that this passage contains an exhortation for us to deny ourselves, to give up our lives, to die to ourselves, and to follow Jesus. Whether we are experiencing poverty or prosperity, whether we are experiencing afflictions and tribulations or we're doing well, whether we are, we are being persecuted because of our faith in Christ or we haven't experienced that yet. But the reason why I brought up the, the liberty, the freedom thing at the beginning is because we tend to idolize freedom. We tend to idolize liberty. And I, I'm afraid that we have idolized it so much that the moment we start experiencing real persecution because of Christ, real poverty because of Christ, real tribulations because of, our faith, because of our faithfulness to Christ, a lot of us are going to be surprised. A lot of people are, are going to shake in their faith because for so long, freedom and prosperity and, and this American life has been so closely married with Christianity that the moment that those two become more and more separated. I believe that a lot of people are going to struggle a lot, significantly. But again, the, I, I don't see anywhere in the New Testament where it says pursue freedom, pursue liberty to the point that you give your life to the cause of liberty from a political tyranny. No, nowhere does, the Bible, no, nowhere does it say that in the Bible. The New Testament is 
for the most part, preparing believers to suffer for the sake of the gospel, to suffer for the sake of Christ. I'm not saying that we shouldn't pursue, a, a, you know, good values in our, in our country. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't pursue comfortable lives. What I'm trying to say here is that we shouldn't be surprised if those things are taken away from us. And really what I'm saying is that we should remain faithful to Christ, even if we are experiencing tribulation and suffering and persecution. One thing is clear from this section. Jesus knows the suffering of his people. Jesus is not ignoring or it's not uh, uh, turning a blind eye to the suffering of his people. He knows exactly what they are going through. And he is telling them, I see all of this. I see what is going on. I know your suffering. It hasn't gotten out of my control. It hasn't gotten out of my hands. I know exactly what you are going through and I am still sovereign and I am still in control. But not only is he not indifferent to our suffering, Jesus can empathize with our suffering because he went through worse suffering. Jesus can empathize with our suffering and our tribulation because he went through worse when he was here on earth. Jesus can empathize with our poverty because he went through worse when he was here on earth. Jesus can empathize with the persecution that the church was going through because he went through worse persecution. Jesus can empathize with the death of his saints because he died for them. He gave his life for his church. He gave his life for the church of Smyrna. And that's why he is reminding them the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Jesus is about to tell them about their suffering, their persecution, their potential death. But he is speaking from the perspective of someone who already went through what they are going through and what they are going to experience. So he has two words of encouragement for them or two, two commands to encourage them. In verse 10, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Someone reading this, this section, someone who is not familiar with the Bible, someone who's not familiar with the word of God, with the character of God, might be shocked by this, right? If Jesus is saying, I know you're suffering, I know what you're going through. And then he says, fear not. What, were, what, were, what would someone with a different mindset expect? Fear not. I, I'll, I'll get you out. I'll, I'll declare a word of prosperity upon you and you will come out of this. 
I will get rid of all of your poverty. I will get rid of all of your tribulation. I'm going to kill all of your enemies. Well, he doesn't promise that, at least not yet. He does promise that the rest of the book of Revelation is about the, the vengeance upon God's enemies, upon those who persecuted the church. But not yet. Not yet. Not before the consummation of the kingdom. He promised them. He tells them, do not fear what you are about to suffer. It's not getting easier. It's actually going to get worse. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. We learn from, from this passage. We learn from other passages in, in the book of Job that Satan is heavily involved in our tribulations, in our suffering. And this is really interesting. It's really interesting to think about the fact that God allows Satan to give us suffering and tribulation. Think about the story of Job. Satan goes to the presence of God and and he tells him about Job. And God gives Satan permission to take away some things from Job. And he says, only do not touch him or his life. And then Satan comes back and says, well, it, you know, touch him and he will deny you. And God gives Satan permission to touch even his body, to make him ill. Only do not take his life, says God. And I think it's safe to assume that even though it didn't happen in the case of Job, I think it's safe to assume that God can give permission to Satan even to take someone's physical life. But the, but the great thing about this is that even if our physical life is taken away from us, even if our, our, our money, our freedom, our health, our wealth is taken away from us. Even if our life is taken away from us, we have the promise that we will not be hurt by the second death. We have the promise that those who are faithful to Christ, He will give them the crown of life. We have the promise of eternal life. He tells them, be, do not fear. And then in verse uh, second half of verse 10, he tells them, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. So he tells them, do not fear. And he tells them, be faithful unto death. This implies that some of them were going to die. Some of them were just going to be imprisoned for 10 days. And some of them were even going to die. But Jesus tells them, be faithful and I will give you the crown of life. So here you have another paradox. Those who are faithful even to the point of death, they will receive 
the crown of life. This theme about death and life is very prominent in this little section. Jesus, the one who died but who is alive. If you are faithful unto death, the one who died will give you the crown of life. In Matthew 10, verses 28 through 33, Jesus tells his disciples, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body, sorry, soul and body in hell. He's not talking about Satan. Satan can only destroy the body. Satan can only receive permission to take some of those things away. But God is the only one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He is the one whom we should fear. He is the one to whom we should be faithful. Verse 29, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will, f- will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are more, of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who me, acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Satan is only allowed to take a few things from us. Satan is only allowed to take, if God wills it, he's only allowed to take our physical life. But God is the one who has power to destroy our soul and our body. And likewise, he is the one who has the power to save our soul and our body. One of the, one of the church fathers, Polycarp, you've probably heard of Polycarp. He was born in Smyrna, in this same city that we're, uh, that we're studying right now. He was born in 69 A.D., And he was a disciple of John, the one who who is writing this revelation. Polycarp was a disciple of John, and he was one of the leaders of the church of Smyrna. And he is known because he was burnt at the stake in 155 AD because of his faith in Christ. And this is how one author describes this event. He says, Polycarp had been asked to say, Caesar is Lord, but refused. Brought to the stadium, the proconsul urged him, saying, Swear, and I will set thee at liberty. Reproach Christ. Polycarp answered, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did any injury. He never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king? And Savior. When the proconsul again pressed him, the old man answered, Since you are valiantly urgent that I should swear by the fortune of Caesar and pretends not to know who and what I am, hear me declare with boldness, I am a Christian. 
A little later, the proconsul answered, I have wild beasts at hand. To these will I cast you, except that you repent. I will cause thee to be consumed by fire, seeing that you despise the wild beasts, if you will not repent. But Polycarp said, You threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour, and after a little is extinguished, but are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why do you tarry? Bring forth what you will. Soon afterwards, the people began to gather wood and kindling, the Jews especially, according to custom, eagerly assisting them. Thus Polycarp was burnt at the stake. Polycarp was one of the believers at the church in Smyrna. And he and the believers in this church understood that the crown of life was way more valuable than their own earthly lives. They understood that following Jesus and receiving the crown of life from him was more desirable than all the riches and glories of this earth. When we call someone to be a Christian, when Jesus calls someone to be a Christian, when he calls you, he is calling you to come and die. He tells those who wanted to follow, follow him, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses and forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him the Son of Man be will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This is not necessarily a call to be willing to die in the rare situation that someone comes and holds a gun to your head and says, blaspheme the name of Christ. Just, you know, speaking thinking about experience and statistically, I don't think that's going to happen to many of us. I don't know. I could be wrong. But this is a call to die to yourself every day. This is a call to deny your own desires. It is a call to intentionally renounce to your aspirations of a comfortable life of conquering the whole world, of accomplishing everything that your heart desires, denying all of this for the joy of receiving from Christ the crown of life that he has promised to those who are faithful to him. And if we live for him, if we really, really give our lives to him and remain faithful to him, when we die, whether it be of natural causes, whether it be of martyrdom, whatever, whatever the cause of our deaths may be, 
we will receive the crown of life from him. We will receive eternal life. We will receive the promise. He says in verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. What is the second death? The second death is the eternal death. Many of us, if if not all of us, are going to experience the first death, the physical death. But those who are faithful to Christ will not experience eternal death. We will receive life everlasting with him. And we should encourage one another with these words. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your son, Jesus. Thank you that he went through worse sufferings, worse tribulation, worse persecution, and even death for us. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would move us that your spirit would bring your word to bear in our lives and that we would respond to the call of your son Jesus to deny ourselves and to follow him, to take up our cross every day and to follow him. Lord, we want to be faithful to you unto death, whether that means remaining firm under persecution or whether that means living our lives faithful to you, in obedience to you, resisting sin and temptation, and faithfully following you. Please give us strength to live our lives for you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.